This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 14th, 2022, the double Bazelon edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. That sharp intake of breath came from, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. We'll, we'll explain what double Bazelon means in a second. I know. Terrifying term. We will explain. And also with us, of course, is John Dickerson of CBS This Sunday Morning in New York. Hello, John. Did you hear that blast that came from opening my LaCroix? I was I didn't mean to um, have it be that loud, but uh, it's probably the best thing I'll say I'll show. Scary. This week, how bleak are Democratic electoral prospects? We will talk to an up-and-coming political data analyst, Simon Bazelon, who is Emily's son. It's true. And wrote an amazingly interesting piece this week about Democratic Senate prospects. Then the inflation numbers are terrible. What can Washington do about them, if anything? And then we'll discuss Jonathan Haidt's fascinating and unsettling Atlantic article, why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid, which I feel like lots of things have been uniquely stupid, but th- this is a really <laughs> persuasive. Well, we'll talk about the article in a minute. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Democrats are sleepwalking into a Senate disaster. It's a piece on slow, boring Matt Iglesias's wonderful Substack. It was not written by Matt. It was written by Simon Bazelon. It is a really interesting piece. And I actually only, after reading it, realized that Simon had written it. And Simon, of course, is Emily's son. He's a college student. He's also the author of the Out of the Ordinary Substack himself. Everyone's got a Substack except us. Simon Welcome to the GabFest. How weird is it to be on the show with your mom that you don't listen to? You know, it is definitely a little weird. I will, I will definitely admit that. Yeah. <laughs> but glad to be here. What is the Senate disaster that Democrats are walking into? And then what is the disaster for 2024 as well as 2022? The basic outline of the piece is that there are a couple trends that have been going on for the last decade or so. Um, and when you put them together, you get a really scary picture for Democrats in the Senate. And the first trend is that, you know, non-college educated and rural voters are moving away from the Democratic Party and have been, especially since, you know, 2012. Um, And these voters are overrepresented in the Senate. And so as they've moved away from the Democratic Party, uh, the Senate has become structurally biased against the Democratic Party in essentially record fashion. So Democrats now need to, roughly speaking, win the national popular vote by around six to seven percent every single election cycle in order to hold a Senate majority. And what does that mean specifically for the number of seats that Democrats are likely to have after 2022 and after 2024? Right. So I think the maps are really, the map is 2022 is okay. The map of 2024 is terrible. Right. So I think now, right now with the current national environment, I think we're looking at between 46 and 47 uh, Democratic senators after the 2022 elections. Um, That's what prediction markets like predict it seem to think. Um, And then after 2024, you know, we have this whole class of senators who originally got elected in this 2006 blue wave, followed up by the 2012 election, which was really good for Democrats as well. And then the 2018 election, which was great. 
and they're all sort of hanging around. But, you know, this 2024 seems like uh, pretty likely to be the wipeout for folks like Joe Manchin, Sherrod Brown, John Tester. And you could really see a lot of Democratic incumbents lose. And Simon, the reason the national popular vote is a good proxy, but explain why it's not a perfect proxy, is that um, our Senate elections, House elections are more nationalized than ever. That trend has been going on for some time. But because split ticket voting has disappeared largely, and basically everybody votes closer to their national views, the distinguishing characteristics of individual races kind of get swamped under national trends. Right. That's exactly right. You know, it used to be in the 2000s that you'd have folks like Mark Pryor in Arkansas and Ben Nelson in Nebraska who would run way, way ahead of the ticket and win Senate elections in these really conservative states. Uh, and you just don't see that anymore to any any similar degree. You know, in 2020, the correlation between uh, the Democratic presidential vote in a state and the Democratic Senate vote in a state was around 095 which is just really, really high and makes it incredibly difficult for folks like Joe Manchin, who is up again in 2024. He's going to have a really, really hard time eking out a victory again. Are there any factors that are pushing in another direction? Like, for example, there's a rise in the number of young voters who are registered to vote. I know that young voters and uh, Democrats are like Lucy with the football. Every time the Democrats hope they're going to save the day, they rarely turn out in the numbers the Democrats want. But they have in a couple of presidential elections in the last um, several years come through. Do you look at that cohort or is there any other group that um, that the data suggests could be a kind of ray of hope for Democrats? I mean, I think there is evidence that young voters are moving to the left. But, you know, overall, that is more than outweighed by the shift of these non-college educated and rural voters moving to the right, who, again, are super overrepresented. I think one way that you can look at this really clearly is that in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the national popular vote by around 2%, but she only carried 19 states. And so if you think that, you know, in the years to come, there's going to be very little ticket splitting, this means that the long run average number of senators that Democrats will have if they continue to win elections by around 2% is around 38, which is incredibly low. Do you think that the Lucy and the football analogy is still relevant? I was just thinking, (laughs) Simon must have been, peanuts must have been off the air before Simon was born. It was a comic strip. I mean, off the air. I mean, off the, off the, out of the pages. But can't there be, like, can't we think of something that's more contemporary? There's gotta be, like, a South Park. Is there a Calvin and Hobbes analogy that works? That is also was probably stopped. What about Andy Cap? What about, let's get an Andy Cap analogy. I am aware (laughs) of the analogy. I know what Lucy the football is. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Andy Cap, no. I don't think I really get that reference. Can I bring this conversation back on the the road, which is... um, Simon, uh, Mitch McConnell says, partially to keep fundraising going, but I think there is some truth in this. He says, basically, we we had a bunch of oddballs in 2010, Ken Buck in Colorado, Sharon Angle in Nevada, um, Christine O'Donnell in, in Delaware, and they won Republican primaries, often with the backing of Sarah Palin, beat mainstream candidates, and then Republicans lost all those states. He says, we don't want to do that again. We fixed that problem. Perhaps. Because there are some states where that there is that problem. But I guess my question is to your thesis, whether that matters anymore, whether the difference between life in 2010 and life right now is that Republicans are so unified in opposition to the national Democratic president that you can, as long as the person has a warm pulse, their individual idiosyncrasies have less effect on the, the votes in their election than they would have in 2010. 
Yeah, so I think that's definitely true. Um, I think that, you know, that goes back to what we said about voters just sort of pulling the lever for whoever has uh, the letter next to their name that that's, that is the party they support. But also, I think it's worth noting that in 2010, Democrats were going into that election with 60 Senate seats. And right now we're going into this election with 50 Senate seats. So the margin of error is zero. And that makes a huge difference because, you know, maybe they nominate a goofball in one of these seats and they lose a winnable election, but they only need to win one seat. Yeah, They only need to win one seat going into 2022, that is. Right. Republicans gained six seats in 2010 and they still didn't take over control of the Senate to to prove your point. So, Simon, you work with David Shore, who's obviously done all sorts of interesting work about where the balance of the Democratic Party should be and the, the need for the Democratic Party to be more moderate on certain issues if it wants to succeed over time. And there has been this vicious intra-party fight about moderating the message and and not getting trapped in things like uh, defund the police. and and But yet it feels to me as we look at 2022 that none of that stuff actually matters, that the forces that are that are that are going to destroy the Democrats in 2022 don't have anything to do or have very little to do with those intra-party fights. They have to do with inflation, the destabilization of the world generally. It's not really critical race theory that is going to take down Democratic Senate candidates. It might, it's not going to help, but that's not what's going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with that, especially when it comes to 2022. There's probably more room for uh, Democratic Party messaging to affect the 2024 election. Um, but with 2022, I think you're definitely looking at economic conditions being the primary driver. I will also say that, you know, this piece was actually fully inspired by a conversation I had with David Shore, my employer at Blue Rose Research, uh, where I've been working for the last year. Well, let's imagine Democrats woke up to the argument you make. A, what could they do? And B, isn't the fight that David's talking about, even when presented the starkest um, diagnosis, the problem is the prescription is there's a huge fight over the prescription and what the answer is. And therefore, Mm -hmm. even if everybody's fully awake, what's the capacity of the party to do anything to fix this problem? Yeah. The big thing is, uh, you know, if you want to revert coalitions back to a point where Democrats faced a lesser Senate bias, um, you're going to have to do that by running the type of campaigns that Democrats used to run. You know, Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 uh, ran campaigns that resulted in the Electoral College actually being biased in his favor. You know, I don't think people we don't we don't talk about that because it didn't end up affecting the results of those elections. But there was an electoral college bias in favor of the Democratic Party in 2008, 2012. So, I mean, just to explain, what does that mean? That means that there were small, relatively smaller states were more what likely it means to- is that, you know, you could you, we call this uh, the tipping point state. So if you if you take the most liberal state uh, and then the next most liberal state and you add them all up until you have 270 electoral votes, the state that puts you over the top. Uh, to that number 270. If you look at that state's result in the election and compare it to the national popular vote, you can find the difference between those numbers. And that difference is uh, the electoral college bias, essentially. So in 2020, Joe Biden won this tipping point state, Wisconsin, by around 0.6% and won the national popular vote by around 4.5%. So the electoral college bias was around 4%. Got it. But in 2012, that bias was in favor of the Democratic Party. One thing that struck me in the reading we did was research suggesting that the, to me, frightening moves Republicans have made to destabilize the structure of the democracy are not foremost in most voters' minds, that a very small percentage of people actually vote on those issues, even though I think, you know, the media has taken to covering them much more since uh, the 2020 election and the January 6th violence in Washington 
And even though I think a lot of liberal partisans care about them a great deal, I was really struck by, um, you know, the tiny percentage of people for whom these are decisive issues. And I wonder if there's a way in which, while it's really necessary, I continue to believe, to try to strengthen um, our uh, our election protections, whether the notion that this is going to save Democrats from Republicans is just foolish. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a there's a real point there. You know, you, if you look at surveys of, you know, voters by different educational categories, what you see is that, you know, the World Value Survey, for example, runs a question where they ask something along the lines of, would you rather have a strong leader who didn't have to deal with a legislature or a strong legislature? And, you know, the, the lower you go on the educational rung, the more likely people are to say that they would just prefer a strong leader who didn't have to deal with, with a legislature. There's a real thing here where college-educated cosmopolitan voters like all the people on this podcast care way more about these issues of democratic process than more rural, non-college-educated voters do. And isn't there also uh, political ev- science evidence from uh, Milan Sfalik and Matthew Graham that says caring doesn't necessarily mean you can care and still vote for the person who is anti-democratic. I mean, we saw, Absolutely. you know, and that that number is incredibly high. The number of people who, if you ask them, are these things bad? They will say, yes. Would you support a candidate who promises to do these things you think are bad? Yes. And that's particularly frightening. So, Simon, m- maybe to bring this to a close, you began by talking about this shift of non-college educated rural and I th- I don't know if you said white, but non-college educated rural voters shifting so hard to the Republican Party. Is that group itself shrinking at any kind of rate? I would have thought that the college educated cosmopolitan portion of the country is growing. It's just that it's growing and it's growing in the wrong. It's growing in places where it already has a kind of a propulsive and insurmountable majority. And so it doesn't really matter for electoral purposes that it's growing. But is that I would have just like thinking about the country that that group is not a growing group. I'm not actually sure on the answer there, but I think the bigger point is not uh, the demographic trends of what the size of these groups are, but the relative partisan valence of these groups. How strongly do they lean toward the Democratic Party? And one thing you're seeing is that rural, non-college educated whites especially are shifting much more quickly to the Republican Party than they are shrinking as a share of the population. And so the Senate bias is still increasing which, again, poses these huge problems for the Democratic Party in the long run. Simon Bazelon has the Out of the Ordinary substack. You can also read him on uh, Matt Iglesias' Slow Boring substack, his excellent piece, Democrats Are Sleepwalking into a Senate Disaster. Simon, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having and, me. Uh, you can see, I can, I, can, I can see where Emily got her smarts. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be the other way around, but I appreciate that. Yeah. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. We have had some doozies in recent weeks, and we're going to have a good one today. We're going to talk about what is the worst way we spend our time, maybe what is the best way we spend our time, too, and how can we do better with it? If you are a Slate Plus member, you will get that bonus segment. You'll also get member-exclusive episodes and segments from other shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. You get no ads on any podcast. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member today. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. 
One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is the veil now streaming only on Hulu. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Inflation hit 8.5% in March, the highest rate in 40 years. I think the fifth month in a row that it's been the highest rate in 40 years. Energy prices are surging, driven of course, by the war in Ukraine, partially, but by other things. Food prices are up as well. Rents are up as well. Just about everything costs more. Liberal economists, Paul Krugman, for example, are predicting that inflation has peaked, at least uh, probably peaked, because energy markets are working more normally and because some countries, the, the sort of grain exports that have been troublesome seem to be getting sorted, although We'll see how long that lasts, given that Ukraine probably won't be producing or exporting a lot this this summer. Um, but it's a pretty overwhelming evidence, John, that, that inflation is just a persistent and naughty problem and that people are enraged about it. It's true. And there are there are a whole bunch of different aspects to the inflation problem, the political and the policy one and the space to make policy moves. Um, a, there aren't there isn't that much the president can do. He's desperately trying to do things, um, granting a waiver to allow more ethanol and gasoline. Politically, he's going on the road, uh, trying to travel more and show how he's doing things to get more truckers trained so that they can ease some of the supply chain issues. All of this is to to address the fact that not only is inflation high, not only do people cite inflation as one of their big worries, but um, they think by enormous numbers that the president isn't doing enough. The problem is there's only so much the president can do. Really, the the place to watch is the Federal Reserve and how much they increase interest rates to, to get that cliche watch soft landing. Uh, the problem is Larry Summers, who correctly called the inflation problem from putting too much money on the demand side, too much money in the in the economy. One of the two ways you can have inflation is when you have too much money chasing too few goods is now saying that if the Fed makes a mistake, we go into a recession. So, and then the final point I would make is all of these policy responses are connected to a social trust problem because when inflation first started hitting, what people heard from the administration and other economists was this is going to be transitory, it's going to pass pretty quickly, it's based on these things that aren't going to last. And so all policy responses, which have a political aspect, take place in the in the backdrop of people's skepticism that the people in charge really know what they're doing. I don't think it's 100% clear that this is entirely a, a inflation spike created by government putting it's too much both. money into the economy there's been yeah it's both i mean there's and the these the disruptions in the supply chain and the ways in which goods and services are being provided is is 
enormous. I was talking to, to, to somebody who ran a restaurant and they were saying that they've raised their food prices about 12% over a year ago, but their food costs are up 30% and their labor costs are up 20%. Wow. So it's, it's just everything. It's all, it's a, it's a kind of a surge, a stew all coming together at once of forces. Right. But, it, but it's, it's definitely both. It's both the shortage of supply and also demand. And the argument of people who say that inflation has peaked is that the stimulus is, is disappearing. The counter argument is people saved up a lot of money. Wages are still high uh, and that that still puts demand side pressure in the economy. I mean, we were all alive in the 70s when we had, you know, a big escalation in gas prices. I don't remember it super well, except this kind of feeling of nagging worry. And that seems like it's back. I mean, how do you break this spiral once it starts? People have higher prices to pay. They demand higher wages. Then there's pressure on employers of the kind David was just describing. Um, you know, the Fed is going to try to break this by raising interest rates and then and then you have the concern of them overcorrecting or it all just it just there are all these parts of this machine. It's pretty delicate and we need to mess around with it um, to try to address what's going on. But it feels very uncertain. I have a question about Biden. I know this is a kind of performative idea and probably I'm clinging to it desperately. But do you think the president missed an opportunity in the beginning of the war in Ukraine to, you know, speak to the American people from the Oval Office and say, look, this is going to be a sacrifice. Like, we're we're going to all pay some price for this. It's Putin's fault. Now, obviously, that would be oversimplifying the um, inflation problem, but just this sense of kind of shared sacrifice and solidarity, because there is a way in which Ukraine is having an effect on this. And I think Americans might be a little more patient and have some forbearance if they had that framing um, top of mind. Well, the they have tried to use that framing because they're calling it the Putin price hike and so forth. But I just don't think it is working. It's not It's not clear to me. I think you're, the, the thesis is right, Emily. Biden is just a, he's a merely adequate communicator at best. And the country as a whole is not terribly interested in listening to him. Yes. And a lot of the people who are very angry about inflation wouldn't would under no circumstances listen to him because as we've also talked about people's views on the economy have become very partisan. So, so the old, so there's a set of Democrats who will be bullish on the economy, no matter what. And a set of most, most Democrats will be bullish on the economy, no matter what. And most Republicans will be bearish on the economy, no matter what, no matter what the reality is. And the number of people in the middle whose views you can shift are also tiny. So I, I, I mean, I do think, I don't know, John, you're the, you're the, the, the the father of presidential rhetoric studies, so maybe you <laughs> well, have a, a take on this, but but I'm not sure it would have worked. So as we talked about with Simon, the, the the how issues work within the constituencies that participate in midterms is a funny thing. So um, and that's what you're you were saying, David. I think you know I'm pretty bearish on the power of rhetoric. However. Biden and the administration don't have a lot of other alternatives. There's a little bit of a mini debate going on about whether Democrats want to nationalize the election or keep it local. You can never keep it local in America's politics. So if it's going to be a national election and you've got this inflation, which is hitting every day with people as they're buying food and gas, 
why not take a big opportunity, which is, in fact, contributing to the inflationary picture at some level, what's happening in Ukraine, um, and shove everything underneath that. Give a speech that allows Democrats to rally a patriotic feeling and put all of the economic news, if they can, and also the general feeling the country's going in the wrong direction, argue, look, uh, this is part of disruption because of Ukraine, and we're doing our duty as Americans standing up for freedom and self-determination by sucking it up and by not whining. And at least it's a shot. I mean, compared to the, what the administration's doing and what the other alternatives are, I think it would have been a perfectly valid thing to try. That is exactly my point. Better put. I like that. that one of the things that I think is so dangerous for Biden and the Democrats is just that recessions are bad. Recessions where there's high unemployment are terrible, and they are unbelievably terrible for the people who are suffering from unemployment, people who are unemployed and their close relations, those who depend on them economically. And the the health effects are devastating. The lifetime damage is huge. But it's confined generally, like during recessions. The pain is, it's not completely confined to that group, but it's it's much more concentrated in that group. Like the people who are unemployed suffer enormously. The rest of the country, not so much. Inflation, everyone everyone has their own inflation rate. Everyone feels but, it. And it is very unpleasant for yeah. everyone to live in a time of high inflation. And so it's a universal ailment, unlike recessions, which tend to be specific ailments. And it's that's, as a political matter, that's that's practically impossible to deal with. I don't think there's a, I can't, John, again, I'll turn to you as a historian, but certainly Jimmy Carter was absolutely devastated by the high inflation rate that struck during his, uh, his presidency. It's, yeah, it's because it's a double blow. It's the inflation, which makes people unhappy, riles up the opposition if you're a Democrat, and it saps your own team. So that's a, the bummer. Then the second thing is because presidents have limited things they can do, it's a weakness about the guy in charge. So it, it contributes to the feeling among Democrats that, you know, Biden just isn't, he didn't deliver on what they wanted. Um, and here he is not delivering on this other, other big thing. So yeah, it's, it can be devastating. And that's why part of Larry Summers' argument for the reason it, it's bad to overshoot uh, and put too much money in the economy, even though you're trying to help people at the lower end of the income scale, um, all of those people Democrats want to help and wanted to help with the big infusion of money during COVID-19. Summers' argument is, yes, but what you create is the economic conditions that then lead to Thatcher and Reagan. So taking your uh, Carter analogy, you create a backlash that then um, leads to political change that is, in the end, worse for those people you were trying to help, because the policies that it that come with those Republicans um, or conservatives in the old-fashioned sense are worse for that cohort. One quick thing that about messaging, as you were saying, David, unemployment is a great story for the president. There is lots of human suffering that has been avoided by getting people jobs and having the job market be what it is. It's just that in our contemporary political life, people don't usually like to be told that whatever you're suffering, you know, it's not as bad as it could be. So it's very hard for Biden, even though he's got lots of good economic news he could talk about, for that to be effective politically as a way to marshal voters during a midterm election. Right. I, whereas, and I also don't think, like, when people get a job, I don't think they think, I got a job because of Biden, whereas, or because whereas of the when politicians. They pay more. Whereas when they pay more, they, yeah, I think they feel 
oh yeah, these politicians are doing such a bad job keeping my gas prices down or keeping my rent down. Emily, what do you make of of this effort by Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who has now ordered extra inspection of trucks coming in from Mexico, safety, so-called safety inspections. So any truck that comes in from Mexico has to go through a federal inspection. And then Abbott is forcing them to go through a second safety inspection, which is causing huge delays in deliveries of, of fresh fruits and vegetables and and other goods, but notably fresh fruits and vegetables, which are starting to rot because they're backed up at this extra checkpoint. Abbott is saying, oh, because the, the federal government is not inspecting adequately, it's now smug, you know, smugglers and drug dealers are coming in. And so we have to do this. And it's what it's, it's just an additive uh, to the inflationary pressure because here's all this stuff that's supposed to come in that people are not going to get. There will be less of it and therefore prices will rise. Do you feel like this is a, an act of malevolence on Abbott's part? Is it intentionally designed to mess with the Biden administration? Because it does seem to be hurting most Americans. I mean, it's uh, kind of amazing to watch a Republican governor be pro-wrapping up uh, truckers and deliveries in red tape and, like, extra safety regulation. I mean, I know he's justifying it in terms of drug smuggling and crime, but still, it does seem like an effort to, to mess with the economy, throw a little wrench in there. It just seems like one of those cost-benefit analyses that doesn't work out very well for uh, for people and consumers. His, even his own agriculture secretary commissioner said the policy was turning a crisis into a catastrophe. Um, although the political da- mm. the political downside of the catastrophe is likely to hurt the sitting president more than the relatively safe governor in Texas. Exactly. Exactly. And even the economic costs are actually going to be borne by the rest of the country rather than necessarily in Texas. Because these are trucks that are not, they're not all stopping in Texas. They're not all, all stopping in Huntsville and in San Antonio. They're headed to Oklahoma. They're headed to New York. They're headed to places where we all get Mexican produce. So, John, there's a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't quality to what's happened to Biden. Because if you remember, Obama, during the, the recovery from the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, wanted to do much more relief and was unable to do it. And Democrats for years said, oh, look, look what happened. We we had a much slower recovery than we should have because the Republicans constrained President Obama from doing what he wanted. So I think Democrats had this idea that if they ever got in power, they should do so much. And so Biden went and did so much. But now he seems to be reaping the whirlwind from having right. done so much in terms of relief. Right. When Biden said as president, he said one thing we learned is, you know, we can't we can't do too much here. We can do too little. We can do too little and sputter. And that was that was definitely the conclusion people drew after the Obama stimulus and the anemic slow growth of that period. And that was something that economists were really worried about coming out of COVID is not just would COVID suck it to the economy, but then the economy would kind of stumble along. And even if it was growing, it would be so anemic that the country wouldn't get back on its feet for 10 years or so. The, the challenge we're in is we're in a moment of heightened attention to inflation where everybody's paying attention. It would be so great if we all figured out exactly what happened and what the right policy response is. It's just every political incentive is to just say numbers up bad for Democrats, right? And Republicans can just say that and their alternative set of policies. I mean, just for a moment, remember, Donald Trump wanted to put even more money into the economy, right? So his plan, and he blamed McConnell for not making it so, his plan was to put even more money into the economy on the demand side. So 
it's not a fair test of, of, or it's not a good moment. It's the perfect moment to learn what happened. Because as you pointed out, David, the lessons of 2009 have dictated economic thinking for the last, you know, what, 12 years. So getting these narratives right are really important because it, it affects future policymaking. So we're at the moment to lock in an understanding of what happened. And we're in a moment where nobody is locking in because we're in, you know, a heightened political instance. And that's why this debate over whether Larry Summers was exactly right, what he was right about, and and how much the administration was wrong is really, really important because it could lock in a storyline that affects economic policy for the next, you know, decade or more. GapFest listeners, you know that we now have a new monthly series, GapFest Reads, where we, each of us is reading a book that excites us, a new book that's coming out, or maybe we'll end up doing some old books too, and talking to the author about it. And I'm glad to say that my interview with Amy Bloom will drop in the GapFest feed on April 17th. That's this Sunday. Right, Sunday. Uh, and I'm talking to her about her book, In Love, which is about the death by suicide of her husband, Brian, after he received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. It's a, as I've said uh, before, it's a really beautiful, moving book that's also extremely funny and engaging and enraging. So I hope you get a chance to look at the book before, but even if you don't, uh, join me for the discussion with Amy Bloom on April 17th. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt wrote in The Atlantic this week that America today is like the world after the collapse of the Tower of Babel. We're utterly fragmented without any common beliefs or stories, divided by social media, closed to ideas at each other's throats. The piece is, has the very provocative headline, why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. And I would say it's not that what this piece says is so new. We have all heard about the polarizing impact of social media and the brutal intolerance of the world, the inflexibility of political institutions, the way extreme voices have come to dominate political discourse. But hate puts it together in just an extremely bleak way. So, Emily, what was your response to this piece? Did you find it persuasive, irritating, inspiring, depressing? So I am interested in how there's been a series of these diagnoses and the Atlantic runs a lot of them. George Packer has written about this, Jonathan Rauch. And I find myself both drawn to them and repelled at the same time. There is this way in which there feels like there's something true about how fragmented and just mean-spirited and cruel a lot of the examples are and the way in which there's this kind of unnecessary roughness in American culture and communication right now and people kind of eating their own in various movements and spheres. They all make a point of starting with the right and Republicans and making it clear that the problems in communication in, on the right are worse, you know, denialism about COVID, about Biden winning the election, just these like basic falsehoods that have taken root. And then there's this interesting turn to the left, and Haight does it by talking about the idea that 
liberals control so many of America's cultural institutions, the movies, universities, the media in a lot of ways, the arts. And then I find myself in some ways more interested in that part of the analysis because it hits closer to home. It's like closer to my people. And and then I get a little worried that I'm kind of losing perspective by focusing on the part that is more um, intimate and nearby and where the stakes feel more personal. And I wonder if you all have any of that reaction to it or if you're just more more persuaded by the overall argument and less like analyzing your own reaction as you go. Well, maybe to get to that, let's, I, I started us to, I started us in the middle of the middle of the journey. Let's start with what Haidt says. He uses this metaphor of the tower of Babel and uses it to describe a word that, that there used to be for some period in American life. And really he's concentrating on the post-war era, post-World War II era set of common beliefs a, a civility in politics, a kind of nonpartisanship in, in politics, a general uh, belief in amelioration that you could make things better, that institutions were trusted, in particular sort of the scientific-minded institutions, that things were testable, you could implement things that worked well, and that the democratic institutions were uh, functioned reasonably well in response to both the pressures of from the pointy-headed elites, but also responded to grassroots pressure for civil rights movements and women's rights. And so that that that, that was a generally uh, positive story and that what has happened, and he would, I guess he would point to social media as being the number one accelerant, but there are obviously lots of forces that precede the rise of social media, is that, that the civility that would characterize American political discourse has vanished because it, the, the rewards for being an asshole are so great. And that that is in turn just fragmented and fragmented and fragmented us into a place where the institutions don't work, there are no common stories anymore, and there's no trust either in the institutions or in each other. And uh, yeah, and we're, and we're doomed. Right. People might get um, distracted by the word civility. I mean, one of the things that was th- that I was thinking about throughout reading all of this is I'm reading Johan Hari's book, um, Stolen Focus, which is about the t- 15th book I've read about, you know, our fight with attention. And one of the things that happens is when we all lose attention, we kind of go off after the first thing. And when they hear you say civility, they'll, they will misunderstand, I think, what, what you meant and what what hate means, which is that politics has always been rough and tumble, but there were these structures and incentives and norms in a structure in American life, including, as you said, social connections and and affection for institutions and, and a shared set of stories that kept people within certain boundaries. Now the structures incentivize awfulness, and they have, they have um, basically put uh, the most extreme parts of both parties at center stage and given them excessive rewards for being at center stage. And what I liked about the piece was that it nailed the moment this happened, you know, between 2009, 2011, which is actually, as I was going back and looking at my notes from my notebooks at that period of time, was when I was like, something has gotten wrong here. I mean, when I talked to Peter Hamby, who wrote about what had gone wrong with campaign coverage in 2012, I basically said, we political reporters should just get off Twitter because it makes us angry, mean, cynical, and it's ruining everything. And that's about the roughly the time that this article points to as where something broke and these incentives hijacked the parties. And to Emily's point, 
what you're talking about, Emily, is basically the two groups that have caused the hijacking. And they're different in both parties. In the Republican Party, when the hijacking happened, it became the party. In what we're seeing in the Democratic Party is the hijacking, to the extent that the party was, quote unquote, hijacked by by the most liberal parts of the party, there's a rejection of that. You know, Joe Biden never said defund the police. The midterm elections are about basically Democrats saying we the, the liberals capture too much of the public square for our party. So the party reactions to these forces have been very different as well as the, the behavior inside the two parties has been different. What I thought hate really nailed is basically a the the power that bullies have online yeah. and then the way right a small number of bullies and then the way that has rippled out into our culture especially into liberal institutions I think that's right you know, he talked about a small number of people being super aggressive, but they have power. They cow more normie voices because you just kind of want to run from that kind of Twitter fight or conflagration on social media when you see it. It feels toxic. I think it is, actually. But that emboldens the people who are doing the attacking. They have a lot to gain. And what bullies succeed at, I mean, former President Trump was like a genius of this, is they get one person at a time to walk the plank. That is what you see over and over again in these dynamics is that somebody kind of pays a price for um, saying something like not totally outrageous. And then there's a mob that converges on them. Nobody really wants to stick up to, for them because it's not worth paying the social price. And then that makes people very uneasy inside of institutions. They don't take stands of kind of standing up for certain principles or certain people because it just doesn't feel worth it each time. That is real. I don't think it's like the only thing happening. And there are some ways in which it's probably like breaking the eggs to make the omelet in terms of disrupting traditional American power structures and opening things up to different kinds of people and, you know, to more Black and Hispanic people and more women and more gay and trans people. But there is also this edge going on of kind of sacrificing certain scapegoats along the way. And I, I would like to have the progress without the scapegoats. Right. Well, A, I do think you are, you are falling into the the uh, chasm that will irritate so many people on the left, which is you're really focusing on how this is damaging on the left and not oh, totally, thinking about the, that's the, the, part that the, interests the terrible things that are happening on the right. Yes, the, I completely pl- uh, plead guilty to that. And to, and to, and to note, just to note that, that I do think one of the weaknesses of hate's argument is that he talks about the, the kind of common stories and the, the, the social trust that existed and you you have to kind of squint to see it because of course those common stories are built on an America that, that didn't include had had slavery, had massacred native populations and, and to not recognize that and to not acknowledge that. And so that the, the idea that they're, Oh, we've, if we only could just get back to these common stories, we told we, we told ourselves and, you know, put, you know, had uh, George Washington, the cherry tree, it would all be okay. And we all know that like, that's not, you can't, do that, but I. But I also think there is a massive failure on the left to do to to center the sort of stories of the progress of the civil rights movement, the pro- progress of the gay rights movement, the progress of the women's movement as a central story of America, and look, that it is a positive. That this is a that this is a common positive story, and to and to focus on the ways in which we do get better around that. Uh, I think the left has has done a pretty poor job because 
without the sense of social trust in the sense that this is a country which is which is a force for good in the world, it's hard for people to feel good about it and to work together around it and and to believe in the institutions that we need to serve to thrive. So that depressed me. There are ways in which there are saving illusions, which are illusions as a part of a, I mean, America's idea of a con- of of freedom that was born in a document that enslaved people or that 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 codified the enslavement of black Americans and that gave no real rights to people who didn't have property and no rights to to women in terms of voting is a like obviously is not a freedom document. And yet the the saving illusion of that document gave the propulsive force to the reforms that fixed those things. So there's always been that tension. I think Hayes' point is right. even that tension which was itself a kind of fiction, nevertheless was a fiction everybody signed up to sufficient enough to make the progress that was then made. Now they're not even signing up to any of any of that. And so there is no fiction around which we can all rally anymore. And everything is is debated back to its very origin, which means everything is debate, which means since everything's a debate, you can craft something totally afresh and say that's the new reality. That is the new stage we're in, which is a distinct stage from the stage of kind of all agreeing to a saving illusion that um, had allowed progress to go forward. And so I think he's right there. So as we as we wind down, I just one of the other things that hates the article reminded me of and which which I think is really one of the asymmetries of the world that is disastrous is that it's so much easier to fracture trust and to fracture connection than it is to build it. And so a small number of people acting extremely aggressively and viciously can effectively cause ruination for a much larger group of people because they make places uninhabitable. They make social media uninhabitable. They make uh, certain kind of forms of discussion unpalatable or uh, impermissible anymore. And that is what's happened that the because those voices are so amplified by social media the destruction is is out of whack these five or six percent are causing destruction that affects all of us well right so then we can try to change the rules of social media platforms and hate has some suggestions about that like the idea that the third person who forwards something has to actually like click on the link things that would slow down kind of mob mass attacks i think there are other suggestions like that and i would also like for um you know various federal agencies or really the european union is going to be way ahead on this to be more um proactive about setting rules for social media companies, not controlling speech directly, but having more transparency about how it works and asking them to live up to their own standards and having a greater window into how these algorithms actually work since they're having such an impact. I also think we just have to stop caring so much, really. Like, we have to get off. I mean, I have to remind myself that loud voices on Twitter implanting in my brain is like my problem. And I don't actually have to have that be the reaction that I decide is going to drive my reporting or my thinking or my sense of whether I'm succeeding or not at communicating. And I just more and more notice a gap that when I write or say something and there's a response to it that, and I'm trying to take some kind of like pragmatic or evidence-based, do some reporting that like adds 
something in that domain that when people talk to me about their responses and they're not people who are super online or partisan, they have one set of reactions where I usually feel like they basically heard what I was trying to say. And then online, I see this like incredibly ideological kind of pre baked set of responses. And I just think it's on me as a journalist to just like ignore the second part more and more. And it's you're exactly right that essentially, you know, in a lot of ways, remember the old restraint piece that I tried to write, you know, 10 years ago? Um, this was its argument was essentially that artists and religious figures over time have always uh, fought with the idea of distraction. We are in a hyper challenging period for distraction but essentially the answer is always it's within it's within us actually Jonathan Haidt wrote a great piece about um sort of testing with with um, science the old verities of philosophy he wrote a great book about this and there's great wisdom in that book for this challenge and I'd say it's also it's also true for all human beings I mean the way in which Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and the rest of it is designed and and a lot of the media companies are designed to hijack our attention steal us from ourselves and keep us addicted to outrage and frivolous things empties us and thins us all as people, not just as journalists. And the answer is to regain control of your attention and the things that you value and focus and let that be what guides your days, not these hijackings by others, which is what if Elon Musk was a serious inventor, he would say, here's the huge problem. We have an attention crisis on the planet and I'm going to use my huge innovative brain and my 40 billion Twitter offer to find a way to use technology to fix that problem. Instead, he seems like he wants to do some, you know, what he says are sort of free speech measures, which seems to me like taking all the gasoline that's saved by buying his electric cars and then dumping it on this fire. Uh, so, so uh, just like stop the there. Just end it. <laughs> Let's go to cocktail chatter when you when you're staring at the ruins of the Tower of Babel from your porch and uh, having a drink, contemplating the shards of human civilization, Emily, what will you be chattering about? I had a chance to give a talk this week at the University of Arizona Law School, and I learned from the dean, Mark Miller, about a really interesting effort there to basically um, open up the legal profession to people who aren't necessarily getting a full JD. So they have a BA in law, at the school, they have a legal paraprofessional course, and they've worked with the courts in Arizona to get the people who have those degrees to be able to do a lot of legal work in court. What I love about this is it's an effort to break the um, power of the guild in the legal profession, which forces people to spend a ton of money for pretty routine stuff in court. Something like a basic custody order or a small civil claim or... Even in the land of criminal defense, if you're not facing jail time, um, you have something that is a smaller matter. People who do that work day in or day out are, can be excellent at it without a law degree. It's really just like a different <laughs> set of qualifications that you need. And I was really just pleased to hear about this idea of the, of the state of Arizona opening a way for people who don't have all the money, don't want to go into debt to get a full JD to be able to do some of this work. I think it's a great concept. So, go Arizona. Break the guild. Yeah. Break the guild. Break them. 
break them. I also wonder whether I would you would include legal literacy as a class in the same way statistics in my university would be a, a class you had to take. I took a commercial That's law a class. That's a great idea. Yeah. I took a commercial yeah. law class that has yes. t- totally benefited my life. Um, and and uh, I think everybody should do yeah. that. Yeah. Good point. Wow. Thank you. John, what is your chatter? Well, in addition to taking commercial literacy class, you should also take a, Clay- a Shakespeare class. I was lucky enough, uh, well, we bought the tickets, so we were, but I was lucky enough to see a performance of Macbeth, um, which is in still in previews in uh, in New York. Daniel Craig plays Macbeth, and he's very good, and you, you forget quickly that it's not James Bond up there. But there was particularly an actor, Michael Patrick Thornton, who plays Lennox. And Michael Patrick Thornton in 2003 had a spinal stroke and is in a wheelchair and taught himself how to talk again using Shakespeare. And a lot of people uh, may know him. I mean, he's a pretty well-known actor, particularly in Chicago, where he started a theater company. And he's also been on the show Private Practice. What he did that was amazing has to do with there is this one scene in which Lennox basically has a monologue and he takes Shakespeare, which to me is like the the greatest achievement, which is he makes Shakespeare sound like a guy in this particular scene, like just a guy in a Chicago bar talking to you. And yet it's Shakespeare. Anyway, it was such a great performance. And Macbeth is uh, is an incredibly interesting play. And um, so if anybody has a chance to see it in New York, uh, they should go see that production. And I also had a little bit of what Emily had on the show today, which is my daughter, who knows Macbeth quite well, taught me all kinds of things about it. And this is a play I've seen probably 15 times and unlocked all kinds of interesting ideas about it, which is a really great thing as a parent to be reintroduced to the world through the brain of your child. I love it. Did it make you forget the um, pioneering performance of Macbeth at Lafayette School in 1982 <laughs> with David Plotz as Macbeth? Well, you know, in preparation for our viewing, we uh, we watched the YouTube version of that, um, and uh, I thought some of your choices were quite bold for that age. When I watched Denzel, uh, you know, play this in the movies recently, I thought of you, David. You and Denzel right next to each other in the Pantheon. I know, I did. Me too, me too. Uh, we, I'm sure I've said this, but we did a full production of every line of that play we did in sixth grade. It was that is nuts. I cannot That's imagine crazy. what our poor poor parents had to go through. I can't. I literally cannot imagine. Juliet Eilperin of the Washington Post was Lady Macbeth. Harold Ford, future <laughs> congressman, was Macduff. It was. It was epic. wow. It was epic. No, it, was no. Malcolm. Harold Ford wasn't Macduff. He was Malcolm. Are you still talking? Malcolm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my chatter also about a classic, a classic. So I style myself somebody whose favorite author is Charles Dickens. Um, but really, truthfully, what it meant is that when I was 16, 18, my favorite author was Charles Dickens. I don't, as an adult, I haven't as an adult read Dickens nearly as much as I read him as a child, in part because my father used to read Dickens to me uh, when I was quite young. And we read David Copperfield together and Great Expectations. And so it really you know, etched in me. And so... I have this set of Dickens on my shelf, and occasionally when I don't have anything to read, I'll be like, I should read some Dickens. And uh, and I actually followed through on that. I usually fail to follow through. Uh, I followed through on that and just started Little Dorrit, uh, which I read once decades ago and don't remember at all. And oh my God, 
I remember why Dickens is so great. It is so good. Little Dorrit is so good. Every sentence, every, or really it's not every sentence, every paragraph, because he, he the way Dickens compiles sentences, piles sentences on each other is so excellent, is is amazing. It's just, the, the, the kind of language is incredible, but the, just the pure energy and charisma of it all is magnificent. And I can't believe I've I've been neglecting this for so long. So Little Dorrit, check it out. Where are you on the Dickens versus Trollope uh, I, uh, The Way We Live Now is one of my favorite books, but mm-hmm. but I've read a lot more Dickens than Trollope. I think Dickens, I like Dickens better. I think Dickens is, is a more, um, to me, a, a more lively writer. He's also, Trollope, Trollope yeah. is, is more long-winded. Trollope's books are longer. I mean, Dickens' books are incredibly long, but I feel like he earns it, whereas Trollope's books I always feel like should be 30% shorter. What about you? Trollope is, I, I finally finished The Way We Live Now and I'm reading The American Senator and yet I agree with you. I mean, so I haven't read, um, I guess Tale of Two Cities was the last thing, last Dickens I read about six years ago. And yet I feel like you're, you're right. I feel like there are more rewards, more consistent rewards with Dickens, uh, even though I'm in a high Trollope moment because The Way We Live Now, it just has so much good stuff in it. Listeners, you continue to send us really nice chatters week after week, month after month, year after year. You send them to us at gabfest at slate.com by email, or you tweet them to us at, at slategabfest. And we have one this week from Nick Gaffney. Hello, Political Gabfest. This is Nick Gaffney in Lebanon, New Hampshire. From a cocktail chatter this week, I wanted to tell you about a recent article written by Alex Hansen for the Valley News, my local paper. In the nearby town of Croydon, New Hampshire, at a sparsely attended town meeting in March, some motivated libertarian free staters, making up just 3.5% of the town's registered voters, successfully voted to literally have the town's school budget from $1.7 million down to just 800000 This has unexpectedly put Croydon in the difficult position of either providing public education at a significant deficit or look to so-called online learning pods run by for-profit education companies. There is a chance the budget could be overturned, but this would require at least half of the town's 565 registered voters to turn out at a meeting in May. It's a local issue, but also speaks to the larger tension between low-tax libertarians, school choice advocates, and more traditional supporters of public education. Wow. That is fascinating. I wonder how many of those people who made that decision have children who are actually in school. Wow. Wow, it'd be really great to hear what happens as a follow-up. I hope I hope uh, you send us an update, Nick. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Ben Richmond is a senior director for podcast operations. I didn't welcome you last week, Ben. Welcome to Slate. Can't wait to meet you. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Simon Bazelon, sure, too. Yes, definitely. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Slate Plus. How are you? I wanted to talk today about how we squander the few years that we're given on this earth, the ways that we waste time. We've, I think we... we in our conversation uh, about Jonathan Haidt's article when talking about social media, I think we all probably uh, previewed this in our heads. But it's the, the question is, what is the worst way that you consistently spend your time? And how could you do less of whatever it is that you're 
wasting your time on? Anyone want to give a start? Yes, I would like to describe my yesterday in which I was trying to write something and it was not working and I was getting more and more frustrated and I kind of procrastinated, but I more just like kept just trying the same failed things over and over again. Like I was, it was like throwing darts at a blunt surface and and like cracking the wall and nothing was getting accomplished. And I should have just probably walked away and done something else and realized that like my brain wasn't working, but I have been struggling with this particular writing problem for what felt like I don't know, 72 hours, and I just couldn't bear to admit that I was disastrously failing at it. And it, oh, I just like that sense of frustration and failed effort to get something done just is so frustrating. And I need to figure out a way to just not have that, not do it that way. So you would say that the bad way you spend time is not, is not cutting your losses when something isn't going right and sort of repeating a fruitless unproductive activity yeah and working in a really unproductive way so like you're not right it's much if you can't do your work it's much better just like not to do your work than to keep like staring at the screen and trying over and over again that's just not because then your frust my frustration level with myself i was castigating myself and then that made me even poorer at the task i generally think you're right because since i'm writing uh, uh a lot more, well, basically every day in the same way now, I, the only thing I would say is, I think there are times, because I completely agree with what you're saying, there are times though where the punishing time you put in is rewarded by the subconscious, that um, that it pays off later. And I don't mean the work you do actually pays off on the screen. I mean, you don't come back and think it's better than it was. No, it still sucked. But that you have to kind of get through the sucking for your brain to be in the new in a new place. So that's one possibly saving excuse for you when you're feeling yeah, awful. Yeah, that's a good point. Wait, but do, don't you think point. you can get through the sucking by Getting, going for a walk instead? I, I think sometimes yes. I think sometimes yes, but I think... Uh, Stephen Colbert says that when they're writing, they have these things called bad girlfriends. And basically, at some point, you need to declare something as a bad girlfriend, which means it's never going to reward the love that you are giving it. But sometimes you... That was just a taste of the cornucopia of glory that will come from this Slate Plus segment. So become a member of Slate Plus today and get all of it. Go to slate.com slash plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.